time from when he's come to offer it until the harvest. And so then the parables stack up and they give us the nature of the kingdom. That it is something that begins somewhat hidden but becomes revealed. The kingdom is something that, that doesn't come by flash. It doesn't come by revolution. But slowly, over time, God sovereignly brings forth amazing fruit. And so the farmer goes to sleep and he wakes up and he goes to sleep and wakes up and again and again. And then he comes out and there is fruit. Finally, the kingdom is something that starts small, starts humbly, but finishes with great fruit and flourishing and is, is vast and will make all things new. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom is like. This is how it works. This is how it operates. And this is how we experience the kingdom of God in our lives and in our hearts. And what brings about all of these things, from hiddenness to revelation, from smallness to something big, the, the, the gradual growing and fruitfulness that comes by the sovereign work of God, what brings that about? It's hearing. It is hearing that we become, as the text says, those hyper-hearers of the Word. That is, that we hear the Word and we own it and we think on it and we obey it. And it is the Word that grows the kingdom in this way. The same remains true for us. The kingdom has come in Christ and in His gospel work and we await its final consummation. And right now, as that final parable tells us, it grows by the continual hearing that again and again and again you hear the Word. You put yourself under it on a daily basis. That, that you hear it proclaimed faithfully from the pulpit. And the extraordinary work that comes isn't in, in the flashes and the presentation, but it is the powerful, life-giving Word of God. So that we really should be going to the Word not just for theological arguments and, and to create sort of a doctrinal statement for ourselves, but to come to receive its life-giving, life-changing Word day after day. And Jesus says, here's the secret. The kingdom comes in me and it's built as you hear, as you come and you sit at my feet and you follow me and you hear my message. So as we continue to see the revelation of Jesus Christ as he makes known who he is and then the reaction of his people, what it means to really follow after him, Mark now moves once again to a new section. And here we're going to see different miracles and encounters and, and, and interactions that God has, that, that, that Jesus has that show his power as he heals, as he casts out demons, as we see and have, we have heard this morning as he controls nature. And so he's going to interact and we will see kind of as a general introduction to this next section that starts here, goes through the first few verses of chapter 6, that when we encounter Jesus Christ, when he works powerfully, when we encounter him, a judgment is made, a response is elicited, a decision needs to be made from his disciples. 
When Mark tells these stories of Jesus' power, they're never in a vacuum. It is always done in the realm of discipleship. How are we seeing and receiving and believing? And and how is this power and authority manifested by Jesus changing us as disciples? And in it, we see kind of this core truth that the very beginning, the very first stages of discipleship is understanding just how powerful and holy and other Jesus is. That is that he gets to define himself. He does not fit in any category. He does not fit in any stereotype. He transcends everything. He transcends nature. We'll see that. He transcends darkness. He transcends illness. He transcends death. He is above and and over all of those things. And so most certainly, as we see that, we must understand he transcends our understanding. He transcends our life. He holds our life. He holds our destiny in his hand. And an early confession of discipleship, an early step of discipleship is to realize that Jesus Christ exists above us and outside of us and will not be confined by us. And we must submit to this Jesus. For indeed, he is over us. That's where we find our hope. That's where we find our comfort. And so it comes, this discipleship comes as Fear of God and seeing his altogether glory mixes with faith. (laughs) And in that mixture, we overcome other fears. And our hope moves from, from treasures that fade onto Jesus Christ himself. More specifically than an intro to this little text, what... I want to do two things. I just want to walk through the story, highlight a few things in the story, and then come back and make three observations from this story. It's interesting, as you read the story, you can can tell that it is an eyewitness account. I say that because Mark, if you remember, as Mark wrote, we said early on, he, he worked almost as like a secretary or an assistant for Peter. And so it's pretty widely accepted that Peter had heavy influence on the Gospel of Mark. A lot of it is sort of his eyewitness account that, was, that, that Mark records for us. And so there's little details in here that seem to be kind of just an eyewitness account that they don't necessarily add to the story moving forward, but they just give us some color to it. The idea of the, the pillow that Jesus is resting on, the idea of the boats that are... Uh, following them some of these things and you can just imagine how vividly this moment was burned into the mind of Peter as an eyewitness account on the boat itself Sea of Galilee where they find themselves storms are quite common on the Sea of Galilee you do a little reading on it you can tell from the uh, the topography the altitude the, the the climate of the area that it didn't take much for a storm to quickly arise on the Sea of Galilee. So that's taking place here. You remember that Jesus has with him fishermen among his disciples. So these are are not just novice people getting seasick here in the story. It's it's fishermen 
It's people who would have experience, who would have known the storms in the Sea of Galilee. And yet we find this must have been a, quite the raging storm because they are very afraid. As you read the story in Greek, there's a little word that basically reads mega. And it's a description, like the same way we would think of mega. It's huge. And Mark uses it three times in the story. And the first one is here. It's a mega storm that they are facing. So disciples are terrified. And in the midst of the storm, we find Jesus asleep in the boat. You know, I, we want to be careful that we don't just think of it as, oh, he was faking it or just being asleep to teach a lesson. I, I think stories like this really point out to us the incarnation, the true humanity of Jesus, and moments later, the true divinity of Jesus. Jesus is exhausted. We've seen this in Mark, that the crowds have been pressing upon him. He's, he's retreated from the crowds a few times just to get some space, some alone time, spend some time in prayer to recuperate. And they keep pressing upon him and demanding uh, demands upon him, let alone now the, the conflict that's arising, people working to try to uh, take his life, to destroy him, as it says. So Jesus is facing a lot of stress. He's tired, he's exhausted, enough that he falls sound asleep here in this boat. The storm rages. The disciples then awake Jesus. And as they awake him, they rebuke him. You know, what are you doing here, Jesus? <laughs> do, do you not care that we're all about ready to die? Are you not going to care for us at all in this moment? When you read the story in Matthew and Luke, there's more of like the, the disciples are prayerful or uh, it's a little bit of a different description. In Mark, I think the, you know, the true truly comes out in those moments of intensity Mark is recording and probably from Peter and they rebuke him when I was in seminary I worked for a roofing company for uh, several years in Virginia Beach that's a bad choice for a job I mean it's so hot we're up there on those roofs and so I don't know that they have them around here but in Virginia Beach they would deliver the shingles and there'd be this long arm that would stretch to the peak of a roof. And on the arm was a conveyor belt. And every few feet on the conveyor belt were a couple of feet that would stick up. They'd throw a bundle of shingles on the conveyor belt. It would work its way up. And then you would be at the peak of the roof. And as it comes off the conveyor belt, you're grabbing these, you know, anywhere 50, 80 pound bundles of shingles and stacking them. So you're working throughout the day. When the shingle truck shows up, I mean, a lot of times there's hundred some bundles of shingles coming so everyone knows okay it's all hands on deck everyone get to the peak take your turn because these shingles are coming and they can't just fall off the conveyor belt <clears throat> there was one guy on our crew I don't know if he ever listens to our recording so I won't say his name but um who he was nervous of heights I don't know why he worked roofing um and for some reason, when that shingle truck showed up, he, always, he had to take a phone call. Or he chose then to like go down and get his water and take a drink. And I remember on this one particular roof, it was hot, the shingles were coming, and finally the, the guy who led our crew just lost it on this guy for going and getting water. 
that's what comes to mind when I read this of like we're all bailing water we're all getting ready to drown we're about to go down why are you sleeping right now come on do you have no clue what's happening the disciples obviously don't have a full sense of who Jesus is we know that and this only shows it even more but they rebuke Jesus Jesus arises simply says peace be still no incantation no waving of arms simple word and our second use of mega pops up here a mega calm came over it's not that just the storm died down it's that the water went to glass the wind ceased in the speaking of a word if you've been in church long you've heard this story you've seen it all the way from the Sunday school up through I don't want us just to breeze past the power and the authority of Jesus Christ that he speaks a word and the winds and the waves obey Jesus it's really a second rebuke the disciples rebuke Jesus and then he rebukes the winds and the waves. It's the same language that's used earlier in Mark for when Jesus casts out the demons and tells them to be silent. It's that same sort of power and authority Jesus has over the demons and darkness he now shows over nature. And then we come to a third rebuke. Jesus turns and rebukes his disciples. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith. You see verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. There's our third use of mega. They were mega afraid. A mega storm, a mega calm, and now they're mega afraid. Do you still have no faith? Again, we see, as, as we point out earlier, that this self-disclosure of Jesus Christ, when, when he shows his divinity, when his power and authority go forward, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. A, a response is elicited. The disciples are there. How will they respond? He sees that they respond with no faith. Then it's interesting that verse 41, they are more fearful of the calm than they were of the storm. They had a fear of the storm. Now they have a mega fear of the calm. Why are they more afraid of the calm? I think it's, again, they don't have a full idea who Jesus is yet. In this moment, they see his power. They see his absolute authority, but they still don't quite understand his purpose. They don't understand his love. They don't understand what's coming. And in this moment, if they were afraid of the storm, how much more would they be afraid of a person who simply speaks a word and that storm obeys? I have an old dog, 12 years old, that sits and barks at dogs as they walk past our fence. I can get outside and yell at that dog, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And that dog pays no attention to me until that other dog's out of sight. 
Jesus walks into a storm and says, peace, be still. And it immediately submits to him. You think of these soldiers, if the, the storm was unmanageable for them, and they weren't even totally surprised by storms, and they still felt, this is uncontrollable, this is unmanageable for us. We can't wrap our minds around this. How about a man who stands up, speaks a word, and it all stops? I want to talk about not being able to comprehend something, being able to manage something. And they have a great fear that arises. <clears throat> Again, this is the initial steps of discipleship. A fear that casts out fear. That Jesus Christ, you would see him as more powerful, of having more authority in your life than anything else. That, that he would be the hope, that, that you see the storms, you see the circumstances, you see everything else around you, but it's Jesus that really captures your attention, that really produces awe. It, it's a fear that eventually will trump all other fears fear of man, fear of failure. Fear of you fill in the blank. You know your insecurities and your fears. And when you get a glimpse of the holiness of God, it overwhelms all those other fears. Eventually they'll see nature and its power is indifferent. It's random. We know it's under God's control, but we experience it randomly. It's indifferent. Jesus is not indifferent. He's purposeful. He controls all things that are uncontrollable for us. And really, his presence in that moment to them was more overwhelming than the raging storm. But eventually the disciples will come to learn his love and his purpose for them. And his presence will be the calm that they need in the midst of the raging storm. But that first step of discipleship is to see God in that way. I think of Isaiah, the, the text that was just read for us by Taylor a little bit ago. A text that's rehearsed a little bit in the song that we sang in Holy, Holy, Holy. And again from Revelation chapter 4. You remember Isaiah. He comes and God's calling him to this difficult ministry and task. And then he catches a glimpse of God. You remember, he says, woe is me. I am undone. I, I am, I can't hold it together. I am a man who's undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. He recognizes just how far the distance is between him and his God. I dwell in a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. I think this is something that is missing in so many churches in our own lives is that our discipleship misses this piece of being overwhelmed with the majesty and the holiness and the sovereignty of our God. The, we, we want Christ to fit into this little section of our life. He, he can be in control of this, but over here he just wants me to be happy. He can be, however it is, in we, we want to kind of manage Jesus Christ and make Christ more manageable in our minds instead of kind of having this 
overwhelming moments from time to time of a heart that understands and sees and is moved by the holiness and the majesty and the sovereignty of God. All right. So that's it, reviewing it. Three observations. Observation one, I'll simply call it, hear the voice of the Lord. Observation one, hear the voice of the Lord. Real briefly on this. We reviewed the nature of the kingdom. Remember, we spoke about how the kingdom goes from a mustard seed to that bush that provides shelter for all of the the flocks of birds. How it, it goes from something small to something that will make all things new. And how does it make that transition? How do you, remember the second part of the parable, you are the seed. How do you plant it? How do you grow forth and bring forth fruit? By hearing, by hearing, by hearing. And immediately we're given a picture, a glimpse at just how powerful the word of Christ is. Just how powerful it is. It stops the storm immediately. Again, I get coming here and listening to me, it can sometimes feel mundane. Hopefully there's some good sermons mixed in here and there, but I get it from time to time. But when the word goes forth, as the prophet says, when the word goes forth, the lion roars. That the thirst that you have, that is what the word of God quenches eternally, that it gives life, that it corrects, that it changes, that it's life-giving, life-changing. The word of God goes forward because it is the voice of the Lord speaking. It's the voice of the Lord on these pages, attended to by the Holy Spirit, that brings forth his kingdom. And immediately, the Lord is gracious to, and Mark gives us this example just how powerful the word of the Lord is. So we think of the word that builds the kingdom. Observation two, probably the one you're all expecting. Observation two, trusting Jesus in the storm. That we can trust Jesus in the storm. You notice a little detail in verse 35. Whose idea was it to get in this boat and go out in the sea? On that day when evening had come, he, that is Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. They ended up in this storm because of Jesus. It wasn't a surprise to him that they were here. I just imagine the impact, again, that this had on Peter and his eyewitness account. We preached through Peter, well, not long ago. I don't know, a couple years ago, maybe. And and Peter, if you remember in 1 Peter chapter 4, he he says, don't be surprised when suffering and when trials come as if something strange were happening to you. Like, you're you're getting it all wrong if you're surprised that this is irregular. In fact, you go to chapter 1 of 1 Peter and he says, in fact, I'm bringing a variety of trials into your life because they are necessary And they remain for a season, for as long as necessary. 
And from them I will work and produce in you refined faith in endurance and patience and perseverance. Don't be shocked or find it strange. This is how the Lord works. And yet, what the disciples cry out in the boat, I think is just a real glimpse into our own hearts. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, that we are drowning? I mean, is that not a picture of our own hearts at times? I think every one of us who has sought to live a life of faith have had moments where it feels like I'm bailing water as fast as I can and I'm drowning. I can't handle this. This makes no sense. And God, you, quite honestly, it feels like you're asleep. Like you don't care. Like you're absent from this. Imagine Mark writing to the Christians in Rome. Remember this original context. In the mid-60s, it's the height of Nero. The persecution that is pouring down upon the Christians. The confusion in the early churches, they're still trying to figure things out and and find their their place between their Jewish background and what God has called them to do and now this Roman persecution and who they are and all of this seems to be mounting. It's no wonder that in early church art, when you see art from those early days, the church is often pictured as a boat in the raging sea. That's the life of the church in this age. And in the midst of it, I think we can immediately connect with the disciples and feel like, geez, don't you see that we are drowning? And Jesus' response is telling to us, as he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? As if to say, like, you have a misperception here that if I love you, you won't experience suffering. Or that if I'm with you, hardship won't come. That's not the case. I mean, you look at Scripture, and I think you will immediately see that is not the case. And yet we've convinced ourselves often, and often to a lot of false teaching, that following Christ is like going to bring happiness and immediate peace and safety. That's not the case, and he tells us that again and again. In fact, the Psalms are a whole book that teach us how to worship God when things are going really bad. So Jesus corrects that, and Peter picks up on it, and he teaches us that later in the book that he writes in First Peter, Second Peter. <clears throat> and so we see that this sort of trouble, this sort of suffering, these sort of trials are necessary for our sanctification. And yet in them, it is the presence of God with us that gives us peace. It didn't initially give them peace, but eventually it is the fear of God that will trump other fears. If you're putting your hope somewhere outside of God, that thing's going to control you. If it's, if it's finances, if it's security, if it's whatever it is, but if our hope, if our, our fear is planted in, in God, then it's going to trump those other fears. It's going to give us steadfastness in the midst of the storm. The disciples experienced that in the peace 
They initially have this fear of a sovereign God because he is in control of the uncontrollable. But when we realize that this Savior is also purposeful and he is benevolent and he is working all things for our good, and we should be filled with faith. I just think the fact of the matter is, is that life is bigger than all of us. And the, the struggles of life, no matter how tough we want to appear, the struggles of life get to us from time to time. The insecurities pop up. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the answers. <clears throat> this story points that out and then firmly answers with great resolve. It's not bigger than Jesus. In fact, all of nature is his servant. In fact, suffering is his tool that he uses to build our faith and for his own glory. When he asks the question, why are you so afraid? The second part, have you still no faith? Literally is, where is your faith? And I like the way that reads, where is your faith? What is your faith resting in? Is it in the circumstances for the disciples? Is your faith resting in the circumstances? Is it in this boat and how well it's built? Is it in the, that the storm would just calm down? Where is your faith? Or is it in a person? Is it in Jesus Christ? The presence of Jesus should give us faith, should give us hope, should give us confidence in suffering because he is powerful and awe-inspiring the fear of him trumps all other fears. Observation three. Jesus is greater. <clears throat> Observation three. Jesus is greater. As you read this story, is there an Old Testament story that keeps coming to mind? Or should be. Jonah. As Mark tells this story, he uses almost identical language in many spots. It's quite clear that it's purposeful what he is drawing to mind. The story of Jonah. You think both Jonah and Jesus are in a boat. Both boats are overtaken by a storm and nearly identical language is used to describe the severity of the storm. Both Jonah and Jesus are found sleeping in the midst of the storm. In both of these stories, the sailors, those on the boat, are terrified. They think they're dying. And they wake the sleeper to let them know we're about to die. Both Jonah and Jesus are rebuked for their sleeping, for not caring about the rest of them and what is going on. In both stories, then divine intervention comes and there is a sudden end to the storm. And in both stories, the sailors are more terrified after the calm than they are before it. There's one big difference, though it's not really a difference, it's just a, a difference in measure or in greatness. You remember what Jonah says as he is on that boat? He says, hey, you need to cast me over, board. For if I die, you will live. 
Matthew in his gospel records this saying of Jesus where Jesus is speaking of himself. He says, one greater than Jonah is here. First him to himself as, as the true, as the greater Jonah. And, and he means this, that one day I will calm all storms and I will still all waves and not by sacrificing myself to nature, but nature will only work for your good and sing my praises. I will overcome all destruction, all brokenness, all suffering, all that is difficult. And I will do it on the cross. Jonah may have willingly had himself thrown overboard to, to momentarily stop those waves. Jesus was willingly thrown into the ultimate storm, faced the ultimate wave of God's wrath upon the cross. Because the real danger of drowning is, is what we all face is that is to stand before God and his wrath and to experience his judgment. That's what Jesus means when he says, I am the greater Jonah. One who is greater than Jonah has come. My sacrifice won't just stop the waves for a moment. My sacrifice, my willing sacrifice will stand in front of the wave of God's wrath that is being justly poured out on you. We don't experience that wave of God's wrath that we could not withstand for even a second because Jesus shields us with his blood because he willingly was thrown into that storm. Mark is taking us there as he tells a story that's almost identical to Jonah. But we look forward from what he says here Peace be still. Do you have faith? They don't know yet. They, they, the disciples say, what kind of man is this? What's the kind of man who would lay down his life for our sin? When this becomes our boast, when this becomes our hope, Jesus Christ and him crucified, that's when we truly will overcome the fear of the struggles and the trials and the storm we are facing. Not that we won't face them, not that they won't be hard, but that we'll have faith in it because we see this Jesus, or God, if he gave Jesus Christ, if he gave us his son willingly, if he spared not his own life in order to deliver us from the wrath of God, then most assuredly, his presence with us, his care for us will deliver us from the storms of this life. He's already overcome our biggest enemy. He has already overcome and assured our deliverance. That's what helps us overcome the struggles right now. That Jesus could turn and say, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you believe that I died for you? Do you believe that I have begun a good work in you and I will complete it? Do you believe that I have secured the way for you by intercepting the wrath of God? We do believe that. That is our boast. That is our hope. 
then as the logic goes from Romans 8.32, then most assuredly he will give us everything else that we need. And he will deliver us from every storm and make us overwhelming conquerors. Jesus' presence in the storm is what gives us hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it instructs our hearts and our minds. Lord, I do pray specifically for those, and I know there are a handful, and I know there's some that I'm sure I don't even know about, Lord, who find themselves in that predicament of a storm. Sorrow that they don't know exactly how to deal with and don't know if it will be alleviated. Answers that they just can't find. Disappointments. Insecurities. Lord, the the presence of Christ doesn't mean none of these trials are real. We're not meant to pretend that they don't exist and aren't hurtful. Lord, but might our fear of a majestic, holy, awesome God trump the fears that we have elsewhere. Lord, might the fact that Christ laid down his life, went to the cross so that we can be forgiven, Lord, might it fill us with with hope and with confidence and with endurance in the sorrows of this age that is passing away. Lord, we thank you for Christ. Indeed, he is our boast. I'll give you just a moment of thoughtfulness there in your seats. Invite the worship team up and then take